Weekly You Demon. A Catholic guy's perspective on everything that matters. Culture, society, drinking, philosophy, religion, even politics. Enjoy. Tiger Woods, you are the man. Yeah, I realize this is gonna this podcast is gonna be released six days after Tiger's epic win at the Masters, but man, what a story. Started the podcast a couple days early and hung over from a church function, <laughs> of all things, uh, last night. And some crappy weather outside, so I thought I'd get a jump on some of the some of the podcasting here since it's Holy Week coming up and time's gonna be limited. So why do I say Tiger Woods is the man? Because he didn't cry. <laughs> I, I honestly, I've had it with men crying, uh, especially in sports. Just, just stop it. I remember when um, Michigan State was playing Michigan in basketball. One of the their the six man or Michigan State six man, seventh man, whatever it was, came down hard on his ankle, and and it looked pretty bad. And then you know you got the head basketball coach. Everyone's crying out there, and I was like, my gosh, you must have snapped it in two. You know, must. Turned out it was a freaking sprain. <laughs> sprained ankle. And I get it, that hurts. Don't get me wrong. I, I, and I, <laughs> I've personally never gone through pain like that, I'm pretty sure. But the way they're crying, I think this guy might have been, you know, a cripple or, you know, have a limp the rest of his life. It turned out it was just a, was just a cotton picking sprain. And one person said, yeah, but they didn't know it was a sprain. I said, yeah, but then why were they crying? <laughs> I figured they knew on the, on the floor that it was broken, but it was just a sprain. But they're all out there bawling and crying. It was just unbelievable. But Tiger Woods, he didn't cry. <laughs> and they tried to. You know, we're going to show you, uh, I forget what they called it, a mix, a mashup of you hugging your dad in 1997 when you want it, and now it's going to be you hugging your mom. It was just, <laughs> my brothers and I were just like, what? He's just trying to make Tiger cry? Tiger didn't cry. That's why I say he's the man. I know we've had, he's had his issues, but hats off to him. You know, I'm not, I'm not much of a golf fan. Actually, I, what I should say, I, I, I don't like playing golf. I, I, me personally, just for me, I find a colossal waste of time. And I always hasten to add, that's just me. Because certain people might find solace, uh, peace, um, a release from everyday tension, whatever it is. If it works for them, that's what they do, uh, to enjoy themselves or whatever. That's, you know, this, this goes back to the whole primary obligation thing. It's like, hey, I'm not judging anyone. And so for me, I just, I just find it frustrating. I find, uh, I, I took it up for a while. I was playing once or twice a week. I actually got a handicap. I think I got down like to 29. <laughs> Something like that. And I just, yeah, I just like, man, it's like five hours for a round. And, you know, by the time you drive out there, put your shoes on, practice putt, five, six hours by the time you get home and shower and everything. So I don't like it, but I've always respected the game. And, you know, you just watch those golfers together. Um, in fact, the worst thing that, the worst thing Tiger Woods did, in my opinion, and obviously this is, I don't mean this literally, is a terrible way he always, uh, treated Phil Mickelson. Phil, by all accounts, is a great guy, and Tiger was just always seemed to be kind of a dick to him. I never, never understood that and always kind of bothered me. But for the most part, these guys are all comrades, you know, colleagues. They, they play hard against each other, but they're all, you can tell they're all friends. You can hear the way Tiger talked about other than Brooksy birdied on 12. I mean, is it's kind of touching. I just like the way, and they're all, they're all gentlemen. Reminds me of that story of uh, the late Bobby Jones, one of the great early golfers. He did something that was he he discovered afterwards, like oh my gosh, that was a penalty, and so he basically put it down on a scorecard. And 
one of the reporters congratulated him on, you know, being honest when no one saw it, you know, giving himself the one or two stroke penalty. And Bobby Jones shot back, you might as well congratulate me on not robbing a bank. That, that's just a high level of honor. And I got to believe there have been cheating incidents in professional golf, but standing here, I can't think of a single one. Not a single one. So like in baseball, you know, the soccer flopping, the hockey flopping, uh, baseball, you've had, you know, people illegally doctoring the balls or using steroids. Every sport has had its share of scandals. The worst one I think golf's gone through is Tiger Woods cheating on his wife and, <laughs> and behaving dishonorably. And that was 100% categorically away from the link. So anyway, always had a lot of respect for the game itself. I heard that from my dad, my dad who was, I don't want to say partly blind, that's, that exaggerates it, but effectively blind, couldn't drive for many, many years because of his eyesight, and sure as hell couldn't drive a, a golf ball. He taught me early on, it's like, yeah, well, golf is a pretty cool game, though, with a lot of tradition, and he goes, uh, he even taught me early on, hey, you might want to watch the Big Four, and those who aren't aware of the Big Four, the Masters, the PGA, the U.S. Open, the British Open. One black mark, however, that I would give to the golf industry and that whole Tiger Woods incident is the cover-up. Apparently, it was a widely known secret among the golfers and among the press that Tiger Woods was a flander, but no one talked about it. And that, I don't think, is so much a black mark on the professionals, the golfers themselves. I mean, if I'm there, I'm not going to go out there and think out my friend or a guy, a friendly acquaintance of mine or a co-worker. I'm not going to do it, especially to the, to the freaking press. But the press itself knew. And that was highly troublesome because you start breaking it down. I remember the time I actually did break it down. I remember, can't remember if I did it in my own head or whether I read articles on it. But it came down to the fact that if you printed anything that was negative about Tiger, you jeopardize your ability to get interviews later. You know, so he had this whole cabal going on. And to me, it's a great snapshot of why you can't trust the press in general. Because the golf writers and the golfers and their handlers, their agents, whatever, they all run around the same group and you don't want to be on the outs. Take that and you know, magnify it by 10 and you got Washington, D.C. You got Wall Street. You got Wall Street, Washington, D.C. together. No one wants to be the guy in the out. So, um, again, that's to me, you know, go back and look at that and, and just look at just the masterful, <laughs> literally the, the masterful cover up. Smooth. No one had a clue until Tiger's wife, I think she took, <laughs> took his uh, car window out with a, with a golf club or something like that. Until that story broke, everyone in the industry knew. No one said a peep word about it. Because you don't want to be on the out with Tiger. You don't want to be on the out with the rest of the people in the golf industry. It was a massive cover-up. And yet these people, these, these, these quote-unquote reporters, are supposed to report the news. And everyone freaking would have found that newsworthy. I mean, you would have sold a lot of copies of newspapers if you published that stuff about Tiger. But it probably wasn't the last thing you wrote in the golf industry, though. And so they covered it up. And again, take that, magnify it by 10. That's the press in general. You cannot trust them.
know, I, I think I'm just a masochist. It's <laughs> been a lot more time going on leftist uh, Twitter feeds and Huffington Post and Salon Magazine, Slate Magazine. All solid to the left. I mentioned Slate before. I actually really like Slate. Uh, yeah, it's solid left, but boy, it has some great pros. Uh, they have some really good writers over there. But for some reason, I went on Rashida Tlaib uh, Twitter feed. She's the congressman from Dearborn, which is like, you know, a ton of Arabs. Uh, Detroit has a thriving uh, Muslim-American population over there. And but here's a tweet that caught my eye. Quote, we can't allow corporate greed to hurt our communities without a fight. Our credit scores have nothing to do with our driving history. It is one of the many unfair practices by the auto industry. Support HR, whatever, ever, you know, let's fight back together. I can assure you that tweet is pure idiocy, and I know nothing about that debate. (laughs) So apparently what's happening here is the auto insurance companies are looking at credit history to determine what your insurance rate should be. And I agree with Tlaib on the face of it. Those two things are wholly disconnected. But here's the thing. Insurance companies are major money-making machines. They have it 100% in their greedy little interest to make sure that they look at every cotton-picking angle to rate risks. They've been doing it for hundreds of years. They have to rate the risks and set the premiums accordingly. They pay actuaries, armies of actuaries, to comb through the data to come up with correlations. And in this case, it looks like the actuaries have come up with the conclusion that said if you have a bad credit history, you are more likely to be a bad driver. And let's just face it, that's not a hard, that's not much of a stretch. I mean, if, if you're someone who's going to cheat on your wife, you're probably someone more likely to steal from your employer. If you're just dishonest, you're dishonest. If you're so reckless that you can't pay back your bills, it stands the reason that you might be so reckless you can't drive your car. I agree with Tlaib that on the surface it's not immediately apparent, and I'm not sure my theory is correct as to why there is, but I'll bet my bottom dollar the actuaries have concluded there's a very solid correlation between bad credit and bad driving, and therefore your rates are higher. So no, that bill should not be repealed. You know, it reminds me of the um, the origin of the multi-car discount. For years, the auto industry knew something about married couples. They're safer. Single people seem to be more reckless. Married couples, probably because they're living for each other or living for their children, tend to be more careful. Therefore, the insurance company wanted to give, or actually did give, I'm not sure, discounts to married couples, as opposed to single people because... The risk is lower to insure a married person than a single person. Well, that was knocked down by the Civil Rights Act. They couldn't do that anymore. So they came up with a multi-car discount. A person pretty highly placed in the the, um, insurance agency explained that to me. That's fascinating. But again, it's it's a stupid civil rights law that made it illegitimate to apply brute facts to insurance rates. And now we're all paying more. Married couples, you know, pay more. Because they're in the same pool with single people. And in this regard, I'm going to throw out something. If you're still back in the 1964 Civil Rights Act, I think you're, you're, you're kind of way behind the times. The Civil Rights Act needs to be repealed. I think. I'm going to caveat that in a minute. 
That, just in general, was a horrible incursion into the private sector by telling you who you can associate with, who you have to serve, who you have to talk with at your, you know, at your restaurant or whatever. By telling private businesses to do that, that gave the federal government a huge foot in the door in regulating private, private industry just in general. But, I get it. It's like, well, you know, blacks at the lunch counters and segregated South. I mean, how, how can you not be sympathetic to the 1964 Civil Rights Act? But my point now is it's been 50 years. <laughs> That's ran its course. I mean, there is nary a person who is going to deny service to a black man. And if he does, well, then they'll put it out on Twitter and they'll boycott him. I won't go there either. I'd say that's just a despicable person. I'm not going to eat there. So no one's going to discriminate against an Oriental or something because of the color of the skin. We don't need the 1964 Civil Rights Act. I question, though, what happens if you have a player like Twitter or Google or Facebook that says, hey, black people can't have accounts here. You know, uh, that kind of gives me pause. Because let's face it, in this political environment, the way things are going, the trend, it ain't going to be black people who don't get <laughs> don't have accounts. It's going to be white people who don't get accounts. How am I going to feel then? You know, white people, you can't have a Twitter account. Why? Because you're white. And Shesky got the 1964 Civil Rights Act repealed, along with all the state equivalent acts repealed. And therefore, we have the right to do it. We're a private business. Yeah, that kind of gives me pause, to be honest with you. Although, as Thaddeus Russell, you know, the author of the Renegade History of the United States, has argued, it's very arguable that Google, Facebook, Twitter, they are quote-unquote state actors. That's, that's a First Amendment term. When you're dealing with issues of um, violations of your, of your First Amendment rights, you can only have your, your, your rights violated by a state actor. That's why you have all these arguments in public schools as to what can kids say, trying to balance those rights against against the, the need of administrators to keep to keep peace in the hallways. Public schools are state actors. Cops are state actors. It gets a lot murkier when you start dealing with other uh, businesses that aren't really necessarily appointed by the government. You know, they're not necessarily supported by taxpayer dollars. And but and so there's a, there's a large body of First Amendment case law that tries to determine who is a state actor and who isn't a state actor. In light of some of the far-ranging decisions that have made semi-private or semi-public businesses into state actors, the tax breaks and tax subsidies, and this the overall inside track that Google, Facebook, Twitter have to government, makes them state actors. And I'm not proposing to get rid of the 1964 Civil Rights Act as far as you know, equal accommodations and, and taxpayer-funded services go. I'm not saying that a lot. I'm talking strictly private industry. And I think a good argument can be made that Google, Facebook, Twitter, other social media, they are state actors. And that's what Thaddeus Russell's been going with his argument. And I have not remotely analyzed my argument against detailed facts, just facts in general, but detailed facts or the case law. But I know Thaddeus is up there beating that drum, and I'm not sure he's wrong. Um, so when Twitter knocks Gavin McGinnis, off its, off its forum. I'm not, or off its platform. I'm not convinced he shouldn't have a First Amendment cause of action on grounds that Twitter is a state actor. I think it's something that needs to be explored a little bit more.
disregard. You guys all see that Ted Cruz video where he asked the Twitter guy, you know, you guys labeled this as hate speech as a quote by Mother Teresa. <laughs> the, the dude from Twitter, I think he was like silent for five, maybe ten seconds. He, he didn't know what to say. And then he went back to what Twitter always freaking says. Oh, you got to look at the context. You got to look at the context. I listened to a Joe Rogan podcast where he had the Twitter police on there, the head Twitter cop. I forget what her name was. And one other guy. And they just bounced around different justifications. Well, that, that violated our policy. Oh, yeah, look at the context. And it, it became pretty apparent that in the Twitter world, context means one thing and one thing only. Does it offend me? <laughs> so the person who's reviewing these tweets that may or may not be offensive, they're looking at the quote-unquote narrative that Twitter holds regarding the world. And they say, is this offensive to my narrative? If it is, then we're going to ban it. That's why Twitter bans things that uh, transsexuals find find objectionable. So if you say, you know, someone with a penis is a man, I don't care what the person says he is, that's considered hate speech, and you could get banned from Twitter for that. That's stating a simple biological fact that offends their transsexual narrative. And once they hold that narrative, if you have a counter-narrative, like a Christian narrative, or what I would say is a common-sense, look, the dude has a penis narrative, if you hold that narrative and you're trying to put that narrative out on Twitter that conflicts with their narrative, they're going to ban it. Highly, highly offensive and troublesome. Uh, downright outrageous if Thaddeus Russell's argument that they are, in effect, a state actor is legitimate. And I think it's going to get tested pretty soon in the courts. If that's legitimate, then, yeah, you got a major problem with Twitter. Your narrative sucks. We ban it. Our narrative is what, is what rules. That's a major problem. Did a little thought experiment on this whole state actor, Google, Facebook, Twitter, whatever, social media. A whole little thought experiment on what happens if they are state actors. Or what I should say, what happens if they are clandestine state actors? Here's, here's what I've kind of come up with with my own head. They are fronts of the U.S. government. <laughs> and I get it. You all freaking out rolling your eyes. That's fine. But just, just think about it. This is the smidgen. If they are fronts of the U.S. government, that they are then, you know, they, they built these platforms, whatever, and then they became insiders with, with Washington, and now they spit out what Washington wants them to spit out, that they are controlled by Congress or by the president. Oh, we know <laughs> that controlled by the president. But they are controlled by the deep state. You know, the agencies, the congressmen, the staff, they are effectively controlled by them. I think that any challenges in the courts are going to get knocked down because the courts themselves are part of the state apparatus. And if they do have that powerful, you know, and essentially, it's, again, it's a clandestine organization. If that is true, the influence the federal government, the deep state federal government that it is having on our public discourse is shocking. They're controlling our search results. They're controlling what we see on Twitter. And it is possible. I'm not, I don't have much. Well, that, and actually, I was going to say I don't have any evidence for this, but that's not true. Thaddeus Russell's been kind of laying out the evidence 
that you have, you know, national security advisors are on like these Twitter advisory boards or whatever. And they're just kind of saying what Washington or DC wants them to say. So there is evidence. It's far, far, far from conclusive evidence. And I think right now it's kind of like half legitimate theory, half conspiracy type crap. But I think there is a possibility that you are dealing with, with these platforms are clandestine government agencies who are doing what the government tells them to do, but the government does not want us to know that they are telling these platforms what to do. It's just a possibility. Again, I'm not wearing a tinfoil hat. I'm not sitting in my basement and holed up with an AK-47 and, you know, two years worth of food. <laughs> a complete nut job. But, you know, these, you start looking at some of the evidence and it's not totally outrageous. Maybe a little outrageous, but not totally outrageous. You know, I mentioned in the last segment that, you know, I, I think Twitter has adopted, they have a narrative. They have a transgender, I think I said transsexual. <laughs> she said they have a transgender narrative. And if you have a narrative that's different than theirs, you're going to probably be banned for hate speech. Unless you don't speak your mind on Twitter, then you're, then you're okay. Just shut the frick up and don't say anything that con- conflicts with our narrative. But I'm really getting into this narrative issue. I find it fascinating. It's one of the key components of postmodern thought. And actually, I shouldn't say narrative as much as I should say grand narrative or master narrative. Those are things that postmodernism really rails against, like Michel Foucault. He spent a lot of time basically saying, and I'm quoting here from a guy named Christopher Butler, who wrote for Oxford University Press. He said that um, Foucault looked at grand narratives as mystificatory, yeah, mystificatory attempts to keep some groups in power and other groups out of power. Yeah, mystificatory. That's an actual word, I guess. <laughs> Figure it's using the Oxford book. It must be, must be legitimate. You know, what, what I find fascinating, though, the whole use of the word quote-unquote narrative, which I think is heavily tinged with postmodernism, that's used in the mainstream press. You hear it all the time. I used it in the last segment. You know, the Twitter transgender narrative, you know, versus like the Christian narrative, or whatever. Well, the whole concept of having a narrative that kind of controls your thought process, that's really kind of wrapped up with the whole postmodern idea. So this gives you an idea how mainstreamed postmodern theories has become. Postmodernism is all about shifting the narrative or shifting the grand narrative or getting rid of the grand narrative and bringing in a bunch of smaller narratives. That's a lot about Michel Foucault's uh, groundbreaking work was about is shifting the narrative or getting rid of the grand narrative altogether. And I think that is kind of part, well not part, I know that there's a lot of overlap between that and historical revisionism. And I remember growing up, my dad was uh, a, a very, very smart man and, uh, and knew a lot about history and he, he always condemned historical revisionism. But I gotta say, I kind of like it. And I think there's a lot of overlap between historical revisionism and the postmodernism attempt to shift the narrative. If, if you want to read about historic revisionism, check out Peter Novick's book, The Noble Dream. Uh, it attacked the, quote, ideal of objectivity in history. Uh, he said that basically all history is radically selective, and I, and I agree with him. I mean, go, go for instance, look at my uh, wildly popular 30-minute <laughs> history of the Catholic Church on YouTube. It has like 6,500 views, so... I'm like a rock star. 
But in 30 minutes, I didn't touch on Catholicism in the New World. You know, not even in South America where Catholicism is just huge. To this day, it's it's humongous. That's why the Protestants are always sending missionaries down there to convert them from, from popery. I didn't touch on it. I, ha- I only had 30 minutes, so I had to select. But even if I had 3,000 hours, I still would have had to select what facts to include and what facts not to, to include. And those would reflect my biases, my preferences, things that I find interesting. And that will affect the historical narrative. I, I guess that, I, I never read it by the way, but I guess that Peter Novick book and it won some awards, I guess it's pretty controversial, but I'm looking at it. It's like, oh, well, he wrote that in 1989. I'm looking at it now in 2019, 30 years later. It was like, I, to me, it doesn't strike me as very controversial. I mean, I don't know how you can really disagree with it. I mean, heck, the first draft of history on newspapers, we can't even trust that. We know for a fact, for a freaking fact, everyone knows it's true that our newspapers right now are not putting forth all the facts. They're pushing one leftward leaning narrative. You can't trust the first draft of history. How can you draft, how can you trust historians who hundred years from now will go back and look at the newspaper stories to create their history? And it's always been that way. Newspapers have never been able to give all the facts. And in the past, they have been guilty of our fabrication and slanting things to sway public opinion. So, in, you know, in this regard, I, I have a lot of respect for Howard Zenn's uh, A People's History of the United States. And I've heard, like, I think Gavin McGinnis just rail against that book. And I haven't read all of it, but I've read large chunks of it. And I know he was a radical leftist. And I know I hadn't even heard of the book until I watched Goodwill Hunting. And Ben Affleck, you know, and uh, Matt Damon. Matt Damon makes reference to it. They're childhood friends of Howard Zinn there in Boston. And they made reference to it. But, and I know, uh, people of my ilk just hate the book. But I think it's, I think it's valuable. Howard Zinn was out, and again, I know he was a radical leftist. But even his harshest critics concede everything in that book is accurate. And he paints a pretty bad picture of the United States and its history. But Howard Zen was saying, look it, I'm just trying to act as a counterpoise. I want to help balance the scales here. All the textbooks talks about American exceptionalism, how we're a great nation, a perfect nation, whatever. And I just want to show that, hey, no, uh, we're not a great nation. We're not a perfect nation. He is trying to, I think, shift the narrative. Now, was he trying to overthrow the narrative? I think maybe he was. And that I find objectionable. I'll discuss that in a second. But we have so many books about American history, our textbooks, and they're always like patting ourselves on the back. Oh, we're such good people. And you go back and look at, you know, bastards like Woodrow Wilson. Abe Lincoln has some major, major question marks on his character on things he did during the Civil War. And you never, you never hear this crap. Well, you do with Zen. I read something with Zen. I guess was Zen, Z-I-N-N, by the way, not Z-E-N. <laughs> he has interviewed and about U.S. presidents, and he didn't concede that a single U.S. president was great. <laughs> and actually, I'm not sure he's that far off. I mean, maybe George Washington. I, I think he's probably a great person. After that, yikes, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I don't disagree with, with Zen on that point. So anyway, so the people's history, I think, is a great, is a great, uh, counterbalance to the standard history we're all taught in the school, in the high school. I think it's extremely dangerous only to read Howard Zinn's 
uh, people especially in the United States, and I have no sh- doubt that the social justice warriors who want to condemn and kill America, that's probably all they're reading. Just Howard Zinn and his ilk, Eric Fulmer, and others like him. The early revisionists, by the way, were um, Charles Beard, possibly a communist, but I think a good faith one. And then uh, uh, Paul Elmer, uh, Paul Elmer Barnes, I think his name was. Um, another guy I think was probably worth reading. And I'm not, he may have been tinged with communism as well. But they're trying to basically point out, saying, look, it, when we do our histories in the United States, we are leaving out a ton of inconvenient facts. And we need to start being more honest with our history. And as a little aside, if you're saying, you know what, I'm going to jump into U.S. history, I'm going to read Zen, here's what I'd recommend. Go ahead and read Zen's A People's History. I would also get a thing called A Patriot's History of the United States. It was written in response to Howard Zen's book. I have a copy of that. I have not read it. I haven't even cracked the spine. Maybe I walk around holding the Zen book in one and the Patriot's Guide in the other. But, But they are, I think, both filled with facts. And you can read both of them and get a pretty far leftist vision and a pretty far to the right vision. If you want some stuff in the middle then kind of kind of maybe tie them together. Um I really liked Walter McDougall's three volume project on the American history. I've not gotten too far through the third volume, but I really enjoy it. And then I've also heard that Daniel Borstein's uh series called The Americans is worth reading. I have that but I've never read it. I've looked up a couple things but that's I've never read it, but I've heard that was like real big in the nineteen seventies. Anyway, just a little aside there if you want to really, really jump into US history. Get the uh people's um history of the United States, get the Patriots history of the United States, and then maybe then read something in the middle like Walter McDougall. And Walter McDougall I think kinda of like, I think he kinda of veers a little bit to the right, but I think most probably just a mainstream historian. Anyway, but I think the question has to be asked, when does historical revisionism shift into changing the narrative or changing the grand narrative? You know, what point, in other words, does it go from giving us a reality check, which I think is a good thing, to trying to overthrow the country? Because <laughs> I, I do think the people on the left are intent on remaking the country. And you can say, well, we just want to change it. It's like, yeah, but at some point, you're, you're changing it so fundamentally, you're actually overthrowing it and changing it to something else. Rome, as I've pointed out, you know, in the early, early podcast, I spent a lot of time talking about the fall of Rome. Well, the barbarians that remade the, you know, they remade the Roman Empire, and they really did, and they continued the Roman Empire, but they actually overthrew the Roman Empire. It took many, many years, and it was gradual, but their narrative, so to speak, shifted, their reality shifted as the barbarians took over. I think you have a lot of that going on here. It's something the same thing. You have a bunch of immigrants and other people coming in that don't share the American narrative that we are a great nation. And they want to shift or overthrow that grand narrative that we are a great nation. And that I take exception to. And that I think is absurd. Because we are a great nation. We are a shockingly great nation. We are such a great nation that we don't know how great we are. Now, I'm not saying great because we go beat the hell out of third world countries. That's a travesty, and we need to get our troops back home. I'm highly isolationist. I want to leave the other countries alone to do what they got to do. That makes us not great. That's why I don't think we have a very good record. In fact, we have a horrible record. And I'm glad people like Howard Zinn are telling the story. Again, because I don't think we are a perfect country, far from it. But we are so great. We're like, we're like fish in water don't realize they're wet. We are so great we don't appreciate it. 
You know, a person who doesn't appreciate America's greatness is a person who doesn't appreciate the air he breathes. What we have accomplished I mean, in this country is amazing. I do believe in American exceptionalism. There's never been a nation like ours. Never, ever. And you'll hear me criticize America left and freaking right. But what I won't listen to is people who don't acknowledge that it is freaking great. And it is an exception to history. There's never been an experiment like it. Unless you want to include Australia, and that's really not like it. That's a bunch of ex-convicts, but they probably are closest cousins when it comes to our like, social social history. Kind of outcasts, whatever built in a great na- built in a great nation. But we are great to the extent that the Zen and his followers and the social justice warriors want to overthrow that narrative altogether. Instead of shifting that narrative a little bit to make it more realistic, like Zen's book does. Well, Zen's book is, <laughs> I mean, it's nothing but a, a unequivocal condemnation of America. But again, everything in it is accurate, it's factual, his biggest critics acknowledge that, but it's so freaking one-sided, and again, Zen says, yeah, it's one-sided, because everything that you teach in the schools is so one-sided, I'm trying to balance the scales a bit. But to what extent that they're trying to actually, not just shift the narrative to make it more real, but to overthrow it, to condemn the United States, the same way it's completely make the United States into like a socialist paradise, that's an evil thing. Okay, that's a wrap for the week. Go check out the Facebook page. Subscribe to the Twitter feed. Tell your friends and family. Go to Demon Podcast for show notes and other information. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>